Welcome to another episode of Confessions of a Wee Timurisbushi. This is your host, Menion, also known as Rob. This episode is a meandering uh, recap of the last session, the third session of the Dark Sun campaign that we're currently playing. And as a result, some people might not be that interested in it. Well, you know, if you if you like listening to me wandering around and um, commenting on stuff that I see while I'm walking in Kyoto, and you like to hear about other people's games and how players and myself, the GM or GMs, respond uh, to these games as they're evolving, they're being played out at the table, then hopefully there'll be something there that might interest you. Uh, anyway, uh, so we'll just get into it. Uh, before before I do, however, um, at the end, towards the end of the programme, I've got some thoughts on the second edition of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, as well as my thoughts on the setting of Dark Sun and the perhaps unholy alliance of these two these two uh, systems. So it um, may, may not uh, be every, to everyone's taste, you might not agree with it, but uh, some, some ideas that are starting to kind of uh, evolve or, or um, take shape within my brain. I don't, I don't like the word evolve, do I? No, take shape within my brain. So uh, without further ado, um, let's just get on with it. And um, yeah, thank you for uh, tuning in. Okay, so good morning. This is me on my way to work. It's a Tuesday morning, uh, about quarter to eight, I think, something like that. And I'm making my way across Sanjo Ohashi, which is a old bridge that's just been restored. Um, it spans the Kamogawa River, and I'm heading, I'm heading into the city center. Um, <coughs> now, excuse me. Um, oh, why am I doing this? Well, today I'm just going to give a, a recap of the last session. I think it was the third session of our Dark Sun campaign. And while I'm doing that, I'll make a few observations of my walk while I'm going, because people seem to seem to like that. All right. So, uh, why am I walking, by the way? Well, I can actually get the train closer to work, but uh, if I do so. I spend a lot of my time working, uh, sitting down. In fact, most of my time, nearly all of my time, is sitting down in front of a computer. So it has a really uh, bad uh, effect on my health. And that's why I've decided to try and get an hour's walk, walking every day. And by doing that, uh, my way of doing that is taking these little shortcuts uh, from the station, getting off early and uh, cutting through the city and... I get to see things. I'm, I'm walking down Kiyama. Is it Kiyama? No, it's not. Pontacho. I'm walking down Pontacho, which is a very narrow street. I'll just walk it. Ah, no, I won't. <laughs> I don't want to get cut off. Pontacho is a, a narrow street that is. Uh, you've probably seen pictures of it if you've seen any of Kyoto. It's a uh, traditionally has a lot of tea shops aligned down there, and um, you'll you'll see a lot of uh, geisha going along there. I'm now cutting across to Kiyamachi Dori, Kiyamachi Street, which is um, in the more more of what you might call a pleasure pleasure district. So drinking and clubs, bars and clubs, that kind of thing. You just try and get across without getting killed. <clears throat> it's a nice street. 
uh, it's got a stream going down the middle of it <laughs> despite the fact it's a um, it's a part of the pleasure district yeah, it has this little brook stream going down the middle of it and trees on either side cherry trees it's very beautiful in the spring I'm going down, I'm walking down a couple of old houses still remaining I haven't got into the dark sun chat yet but I'll, I'll do a little bit more of what I'm doing now the uh, Kyoto stuff you know um, so yeah, you'll, you'll see uh, geisha uh, or geiko. Uh, well, let's just call them geisha for now. So it'll become apparent in a few moments. Uh, geisha walk around here, but it's funny because you rarely see the tourists taking pictures of them. And here's why. Um, because uh, geisha, um, full geisha is actually called a geiko. Um, whereas the, uh, the apprentices are called uh, maiko. And the Michael basically are the ones that stand out. They they wear uh, very expensive, flashy, um, you know, gaudy dresses, uh, kimono. And they have their hair styled in a certain fashion, um, and they ha- tend to have like white makeup. And uh, you know, that that's your stereotypical geisha. Except they're not. Except they're not. So. Um, <laughs> few drunk people stumbling out must have been late night drinking somewhere uh, uh, yeah so they're the young apprentices and they're the ones that get the photos but the real I've seen real geiko just walk past and nobody even blinks an eye so the geiko wear more subdued colours subdued kimono they um, have their hair tied back in a more mature manner and they don't wear uh, so much makeup so they're the masters <laughs> they're, the, they're the masters of their art um, an art that is uh, generally misunderstood uh, and the unusual parts of it tend to get expressed more in the west because you know that, that's more that's more fun that's more kind of um, exciting and exotic and and so on and but you know the geiko obviously are uh, geisha are obviously masters of traditional art and entertainment you know, dancing and uh, music and unfortunately we're going across a very loud street but as soon as we're across here I will start on my discussion of of a dark sun let me pause so the traffic has stopped letting us across now not stopped letting us across it has stopped and thereby it lets us across the road um you'll have to forgive me sometimes all right so we're heading further uh further west now into the city and yeah where was i so we chatted a little bit about some of the things i'm seeing or thinking along the way and now we're going to talk about dark sun <clears throat> so it seems like i've got some music stuck in my throat so we had our third session of dark sun uh, third session did I say first first third um, session of dark sun and we picked up we resumed um, play where we last le- left off which was um, the party had just uh, dispatched three not two Arakokra and um, snatched a what appears to be a, a waxy ball containing water 
from the jaws of a strange uh, winged ant-like creature that the Arakokra were attacking. So they're quite, they were quite chuffed with that. The uh, winged creature disappeared off west. <coughs> um, rather than follow it, they decided to move along a little bit further to the southwest and set up camp. And we went through the general re- typical uh, regime of regimen of um, water uh, spell casting and so on. One of the uh, a couple of the characters had been a little bit brushed up, but they were more or less out of spells. Uh, they took a rest um, um, and prepared some spells and so on. One of the spells that the Templar player pre- uh, prepared was was a uh, speak to animals. Um, now this was because they were following the tracks of two mechilots, uh, huge um, lizard-like creatures that had been pulling their wagon through the desert before the elves had, had attacked the uh, slave wagon, uh, freeing them. And they re- thought their idea was that these two mechalots would perhaps be lead them to water through some kind of uh, intuition. Um, <clears throat> now, because they were getting closer to the mechalots, they this player had pre- decided to prepare a speak to animal spell in case that would help them. <clears throat> um, now, I think they went through the desert the next day. They'd spotted um, some signs of uh, like a what looked like a silvery ribbon weaving through the sky on the horizon, occasionally disappearing behind sand dunes. Um, but nothing, um, nothing spectacular happened that day, nothing dramatic. Um, they had enough water, prepared enough water using their create water spells and proceeded very, very uh, efficiently through across the desert, even though they were going at a snail's pace of something like four, five miles a day <laughs> uh, due to the, uh, the party consisting of two halflings. Um, uh, that evening camping um, they were a bit concerned about this kind of thing that appeared to be following them this ribbon like kind of silver uh, creature if that's what it was or a mirage so they they were being a little bit more careful um, had some conversations got a little bit of role playing in and some of the uh, one of the players the cleric of water was a little uh, c- curious as how the Templar, who is seems to be pretending to be a magic user or or, or some other cleric, uh, is able to have such access to so many different types of uh, magic. Um, so that was kind of interesting. Now, while they were resting, beginning their rest, the, um, the party was attacked by this creature at what is known as a silkworm or worm, silkworm, not a worm, um, a, a strange psionic creature that has, well, it has very limited psionics, but it has the power to assume like a shadow form um, and thereby get uh, creep up on the, whoever it wishes to attack. Now, um, two things happened that prevented its, like the full success of its attack. One was that the Thrykreen um, fighter 
whose player actually was absent, um, stays up, doesn't need to sleep, just needs to rest. So the Freikreen was up and keeping watch in case something might uh, attack them. And, uh, and I rolled a 20 on the psionics. Um, so I have spectacularly failed uh, with the silkworm. Silkworm spectacularly failed to assume shadow form and uh, was noticed by the Thrykreen. Um, now, they, the worm didn't realize that they were uh, up and ready, so they actually got surprised on the creature because it was uh, under the impression that it was safe and unseen. So they watched, well, they rolled um, the bolus of water that they had stolen from the insect creature. As it seemed to be moving towards their water supply rather than to the party. And the creature um, started to, um, well, to completely devour, to consume the water at an alarming rate and then soon sort of dived into the other, um, other uh, water vats that they are carrying, quarts of water. So the party, of course, attacked. Um, now, um, the creature, it's quite a, quite a powerful creature. The party aren't weak, but they're also armed with uh, uh, obsidian, obsidian weapons. Uh, nothing, you know, not very particularly strong. Minus two to hit, minus one on damage. Um, the creature also had an armor class of three, making it quite difficult for the party to hit. Remember, there's only one fighter. Um, so, yeah, um, it, it was an interesting fight. <coughs> um, the the cleric, no, the Templar. The Templar was uh, bitten twice for maximum damage, at six points each time, and managed to make a saving throw versus uh, poison both times as the, the Wyrum seemed to have some kind of uh, poisonous bite. Um, yeah, that's, that was, you know, really great luck on their part again. And the thief had, uh, I don't know if this is allowed actually, I don't think you can backstab more than once, but I allowed the party, I didn't want to look up the rules, so I allowed the thief to make hiding shadows checks and if successful, go for a backstabs he did it both times so over the period of four rounds um two of which were hiding um he managed to get two his character got two backstabs in on this worm do worms even have backs that's another question right but uh in the midst of uh play i prefer not to look up rules like that and just to wing it on my general knowledge of uh, of various editions of dnd um, yeah, you got two backstabs in, but you know, again, they're using it. It's a large creature, so it's a D3 damage with a knife, no strength bonus, um, minus one applied. So essentially, two, 1D3 times two damage, minus one on the end result. So I think the best one was he rolled, a, he got three damage in, so that was six, minus one's five. So the first backstab did one damage, <laughs> which is measly, but you know, plus four to hit. Um, really, you know, it actually helped him get the strike home. And the second attack got a, uh, was, a was a six, so that's the minus one, five damage. Uh, nothing, nothing spectacular there, but every bit counts, and it did count. 
um, the Frank Green, as usual, those five attacks around, um, natural attacks, uh, was landing on average about one attack around. So um, they wore it down to about six hit points, at which point it, uh, yeah, it failed a morale check. I gave it a morale check because it lost more than half its points of hit points. It's a, you know, it's a, a, a wild creature. It doesn't want to die. It's already got some water. Um, it does need to absorb, uh, to drain human uh, constitution and other things, uh, blood, whatever, to survive. But uh, yeah, yeah no, its life it was more important. So it, it failed its morale check. It, it fled, which was a flying attack. They got a jump on it, caused a little bit more damage, really got away. I awarded the XP anyway because it was such a tough fight. They were so, in many ways, they were kind of outclassed. And the only thing that really saved them was that they were really lucky rolls. Like, I failed the Sarnix test and um, got, they got two backstabs in, two successful saves versus poison. So, you know, brilliant for them. And uh, we're on the... Uh, Coming up to my workplace, so I'm going to have to stop and resume. But we're going past. This is a school route going to what well, the school actually that my daughter used to go to. Well, a bunch of kids now walking on the other side of the path with their little hats on, their little school baseball caps. And uh, right, coming up to the main road, I'm going to turn off, and we'll resume from that point. So it's now the next day, I'm just coming down a hill and it's lunchtime and I'm doing my uh, my lunchtime walk, which is what I do when I'm working from home. I have a reasonably long lunch, so I'll go out, get some exercise. I'm going under the tunnel, there's a car coming, a bit of noise. There we go. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the worm had fled and the party um, the party was left um, a little bit bloodied and uh, one of the characters was the Thrinkreen luckily for the party took uh, most of the uh, hits um, but we're still okay and um, oh hang on no it was not the Thrinkreen sorry getting all mixed up it was the it was the um, the Templar uh, Mandrake who pretending not to be a Templar. He, he took uh, 12 damage from two um, hits, both of uh, which did maximum damage. And, um, yeah, so he had passed both his saves. The whole party on a whole felt that they had kind of come off it for the worst, which is true in a way, but they had survived and they'd only lost a little bit of water. Nothing that they couldn't actually replenish using using their uh, create water spells so the fact that they are alive that they'd taken only very uh, minor injuries from from the attack and had beat quite a powerful creature that could have done them a lot of harm I think was a uh, real victory um, they had moved a little bit further into the desert across the desert to what they believe is their goal and um um, yeah, um, so it's difficult maybe to tell what is a, unless you're the GM, sometimes it's difficult to see what is a success and what is a, um, a failure. They uh, succeeded very well, even though they seem to have lost something, but 
No, they were all still alive. Anyway, um, they, uh, in fact, I think, was it that the evening before, actually, they'd had an interesting conversation with, um, using the, uh, maybe it was the same, yeah, it was just before the attack, I think. They had had a conversation with the, with a bug, and I didn't think I, I don't think I mentioned this, but there was a, was it a bug? No, it was a, it was a lizard in the Templar cast speak with animals on it and um, so he had a he asked the animal whether there were any there were any bipeds like them and if there were any sources of water and the the uh, lizard itself was mostly just interested in let's see am I going down the wrong path maybe let's go along one more the lizard itself was interested um, mostly in um insects that were crawling around a large pile of dung which actually was a bit of a hint to the players a little bit of a clue that they were they were still following the tracks of the mechalots and that they were getting closer these um patches of dung obviously were very interesting to the lizard but not so much to the players and they didn't put much uh store in it and the next day after the attack um the, the the party, you know, prepared, got their water ready and so on. The same, the same old routine. Now, they have been eating little bits uh, here and there. They actually um, took some meat off the Arakokra and uh, managed to cook, to cook that lightly. Um, but they haven't been eating very well, but they are drinking very well. So, yeah. Um, the uh, Templar, for some reason, decided not to memorize uh, Speak of Animals again after this. Uh, I don't know if that was because the spell hadn't really delivered so much when he was talking to a little lizard, a desert lizard, I don't know. But he went instead for, I think it was hold person or something like that. Um, this will turn out to be a bit of a mistake. Now, uh, the next day they get back on the track, they find um, some dung. Uh, showing that the track is quite fresh. It's not been covered up by the winds, uh, the desert winds. It loops, continues to loop through the dunes, um, around the dunes, and they follow it and finally see on the horizon an oasis. Um, they're a little bit wary because they've already had some problems with uh, what they thought was an oasis before. And But they, they got closer. They noticed that there were indeed two mechalots. Um, one was... Uh, moving around the other one was still and there were some plants growing at one end of the uh, trees and bushes and so on growing at one end of the uh, oasis so they they um, came closer they approached the oasis with uh, due care and I decided that because of that they actually had a slightly higher chance of uh, surprise so I um rolling that and using that as a because they were saying they were moving with stealth I used that as a kind of a guide for you know stealthy movement rather than a simple yeah move quietly and so on and um so they they used the trees and that and kept on the north the north uh, east side rather than the southwest where the, the two great beasts were and let's see now um, yeah, so they explored the oasis kind of uh, fauna, noted that there was baking uh, wet uh, mud 
at the oasis itself. Uh, the water was very muddy and looked very hot in general. Um, but there were there were trees that they identified using their herbology secondary not uh, non-weapon proficiency skill. One of them recognised that it was a I can't remember what it's called it ibis or I forget now. But it's a type of plant um, like like a fir, like a uh, an evergreen, and the the pines are flat, and you can make a tea out of it. I'm in a bad spot for crossing the road here. <laughs> Shit. I'll cross over here. Um, yeah, a little bit of information. Um, they were then kind of, um, after creeping around, they were then surprised that... Uh, well, I think one of them tried to approach. One of them tried to approach. And uh, so get spy out the, um, the mecha lots. And it was at that time when, you know, one of them started to approach them and became aware of their presence. Approached them. I told them that they could hear the thundering of this uh, creature approaching. And, um, yeah, they were really careful. They took great care. And they backed off. And I used a reaction table. They've got a nice reaction table in second edition. And it's kind of based on the initial... um, Stance or tendency of the uh, of the creature that they're facing, and um, so I made a, a, a roll, rolled very low, and uh, yeah, luckily it was cautious. It came out cautious, so rather than being hostile or uh, or whatever, it um, let them back off. Um, so the players uh, narrowly avoided. Fucking, excuse me for swearing. Um, the players narrowly avoided a, a very dangerous confrontation with um, with a big mecha lot. These things are, I don't know, they're, they're like dinosaurs, really, you know. And you can imagine they've got a few hit dice, right? So that was good for them. That was very good for them. And um, uh, we uh, stopped play around there. So... Um, they they become aware, and they've also become aware that there's a stone arch, definitely artificial, um, in one corner. And I'm going to have to find another way out of this road. Yeah, they found a stone arch, so I've given them a map as well now, rough map of the area, so they can explore. They know where the mechalots are. They're going to have to do something about these mechalots, or somehow avoid them somehow. Uh, maneuver around them without agitating them which is uh, not going to be as easy as they think but at the same time they can do it um, if they're careful and if they're lucky Um, what happens next well we'll find out next time and I'll stop here but I do have some thoughts on on the game I may add later Okay, so here's my additional thoughts. I'll pass on to you as I walk past the prison walls <laughs> of my in my neighbourhood. Yeah, there's, we have a prison. It's pretty cool. Um, so, wandering along, uh, what do I think of uh, Dark Sun? 
Uh, I'm not going to say what I think of second edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons because I think that's too big a topic and I I may have already um, answered some of those questions uh, previously or addressed that issue previously but it does need a lot more of a, of a hard look because it's um, I got a feeling and maybe this is true of all role playing games but I got a feeling second edition in particular is a real toolbox um, and it, I don't think you can say there so it's one thing I don't think for example the image I went on to chat GPT right now it, it was the chat uh, bot for MSN and I asked it to give a breakdown of um, the different D&Ds and it said for, um, it said first edition for the first time introduced introduced um, a level advancement into Dungeons and Dragons which of course is absolute rubbish that have been in the game since uh, the original game it's always been in the game another thing it said about second edition was that it had introduced non-weapon proficiencies uh, as a standard and again that is absolute rubbish um, non-weapon proficiencies were introduced in for the first edition in the wilderness survival guide and dungeoneer survival guide and then uh kind of cleaned up a little bit in the uh dragonlance adventures book um and of course second edition if you look carefully not only are non-weapon proficiencies optional yes they're optional Weapon proficiencies are also optional. Um, that might actually be the case in first edition as well. I'd have to have a look, but it is definitely the case in second edition. So, of course, you've got to be very careful with your chat GPTs because they do tend to parrot a lot of generalizations. Um, that's one point. The other take um, takeaway from this is that uh, is that uh, yeah, you know, um, second edition isn't that game that we necessarily perceive it as that it is actually a toolbox of different things that can be stripped in and stripped you know uh, stripped out and uh, and uh, introduced into so um, yeah it doesn't have to have um, not only doesn't it have to have I mean you can take anything out of the game right you can do whatever you want with any game I mean that's uh, that's that's you can take that for granted but what I'm saying here is actually in the rules a lot of these things are very carefully uh, stipulated as being optional elements and that they're not part of the base game which is very different from how I thought of the game second edition when I came to it and I thought all of these optional things were actually essential and we just you know piled it all in and it does change the game very distinctly the um you know, it's been said that thief skills changed the game. Well, secondary skills, sorry, not non-weapon proficiencies, I keep on saying that, um, do change the game because people are trying to apply those skills to get a game advantage, to get information. And um, now I'm coming down big road. So that's how it changes, that's how it's different. I'm gonna continue this when I have some peace. Okay, that's better. Let's resume. He says as he approaches an idling truck. There's roadworks going on at this stretch. And to my right is a, a paddy field. It's all been drained and most of the rice has been taken down. Looks like they're having some kind of celebration with what's left. Maybe people are going to cut it down in schools or whatever. 
yeah, it looks like school's school ice field. Right, just coming down to a coffee shop on my left, and I'm moving. I'm moving. Right, where was I? Yeah, you know. So that's second edition. It's a, a naughty subject because second edition is huge. Um, it's just a huge um, um, framework with many, many, many optional and supplementary parts that bolt onto it. Um, and I would rather talk a little bit about Dark Sun now, since that's the topic of this uh, podcast, this uh, episode at least. Um, what do I think? What do I think of it so far? Well. It's interesting. I think it's interesting, and that sounds probably a little bit, a little bit tepid, um, and maybe that's how what I think of it. <laughs> I, I'm not super hot on it, you know, um, but at the same time, I don't hate it. Um, why? Mm, the rules, I think. What Dark Sun does to the rules is add layers of complexity. Um, not complexity that wasn't some of the complexity wasn't there in the uh, original universe yeah so so yeah additional complexity um it it uh is not balanced right so when we're adding layers of complexity what i mean is that we've got the psionics rules we're using all of the um non-weapon proficiency rules we're also bringing in the dark sun box set setting rules now the setting rules aren't necessarily incredibly balanced um i may have already mentioned that the thrycreen have five natural attacks around five attacks around you know that's insane um for a player character and the you know four of the attacks do 1d4 damage the fifth attack does 1d4 plus one damage um now these are better than dagger attacks and you may say oh dagger attacks are d4 that's the same really well four attacks around is not the same for one and two uh in dark sun it's very rare to get steel dagger or an iron dagger the daggers are made from bone from wood um and so you know your your typical obsidian sword or weapon has a minus two to hit and a minus one on damage that's massive that's massive um so when the players are going up against um put the fry cream aside for now which has a massive advantage um on any opponent even if it doesn't have a strength if the fry cream doesn't have a strength uh, bonus as is the case in my game what the fry cream does have in my game is you know four attacks uh, one of which is going to hit or at least one or two of them are going to hit and they're going to do more damage than anybody else probably or about the same at least uh, the half giant if a half giant comes in there's a half giant secondary character with something like uh, 22 strength that's a plus four to hit plus eight damage um, effectively four levels higher that's the same as a seventh level fighter uh, if you're starting off at third and a plus eight on damage, you know, easily balances out any minus that you're getting from the substandard um, materials that are available on Dark Sun. Right, that's one thing out of the way. The other thing is, when these players are facing normal foes, like humanoid foes generally, the humanoid foes are also wearing and using 
substandard armor and weapons so it's not such a big um, penalty you know because we're talking about the enemy having armor class 8 um, which is you know for those who only know ascending armor class modern D&D armor class that's something like 12 or 13 armor class 12 or armor class really so that's nothing you know they can they can hit those um, and provided they have you know reasonable hit points they can do a bit of damage but with these enemies that we're coming across now you know like the uh, the silk worm that we had the thing's got six hit dice and an armor class of three and it's doing the d6 damage with a with a um, a successful bite delivering a, a uh, poison to the enemy so to the player character so that the player character then has to make a save versus poison or be paralyzed for at least something like you know several rounds if not a day you know that that's really powerful um the players couldn't hit the thing most of the players couldn't hit the thing and when they are hitting they're doing like two points of damage the thing's got 30 hit points you know um that's one point so baked and it, it's very swingy what is what i guess i'm trying to say here if you had that half giant and he hit and he connected and he probably would a couple of times he's taking out the creatures a third of the creatures hit points on every swing you know the further the creatures original um maximum hit points on every swing so you know fantastic the players are gonna take it out within a short period um, even a character not quite so strong as that if they had had a two two fighters you know a couple of strong fighters um, a mule and a human with you know decent strengths they'll be doing an equivalent kind of damage but the party isn't like that you know they're not really heavy combat so um, the game doesn't take that into account really the adventure doesn't take that into account do I take that into account I don't know I, I don't know should I I don't think I should. <laughs> um, I think I have to let them use their brains and play in a style. Um, using those characters and play in a style that opens up other alternative uh, avenues for success that may not necessarily be written down in the adventure. And that's not the same as as nerfing it. That's not the same as nerfing it. That's not the same as changing the number of hit points or any of that stuff you know um so i am you know still sticking very close to the adventure but i also am listening to what they're saying the players are saying because that's essential i'm really i prefer the older school you know i like the new osr approaches to rules in a lot of cases and if the players are trying to do something they're, they're taking particular care that should have an effect that should have some kind of effect on the game because they are engaging they're making an effort it shouldn't necessarily come down to what is written on the character sheet um, and I know Joe recently published Joe of Hind Sightless, Sightless podcast recently published some um, old old um, call-ins about this this idea um, dating back a year or so when we were still talk, hotly debating um, um, backgrounds and so on and what is on your character sheet but there yeah, it comes back to that doesn't it um, yeah you've got stuff written on your character sheet but if you can think around around everything you know that, that's really that's really cool you know, uh, to me that's um, 
you've got the game elements of role-playing games and that they're really important but you've also got that that freewheeling kind of um, um, uh, I don't know uh, adaptability of the of of the concept of role-playing games that idea that they can be twisted and and turned and tuned to the specific instance that specific instance that specific situation um, and that you know it's something that I really like as well so I don't dislike any of it but I think it has to work together to form that 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 kind of experience that I I want to lean into as they say these days so um, there you go yeah uh, Dark Sun I believe is very swingy um, this is partly a problem of Dungeons and Dragons advanced Dungeons and Dragons where you're getting these for example strength bonuses uh, you know in- incredible strength for AD and D character you were getting 18 was then you could have if you're a fighter you could have 18 and then roll 100 so you could have 18 100 or 18 20 or 18 75 percent strength okay um Oh, I'm going to go down here. And suddenly, the the amount of damage you could do, or the chances of hitting something, or the chances of not being hit some for some, by something, if you have, if we were talking about dexterity, um, changed uh, dramatically. A four point change is uh, in second edition. It, is the same as four levels the fighter attacking you being four levels lower so if you have a minus four defense bonus because you've got an 18 dexterity that's that reduces the ability of the um of the opponent by the equivalent of four fighter levels that's incredible right uh, and that's the difference that the game the ad game um has on on everything you know it really really leans towards high uh, scores. If you've got a high score, everything changes, and so it puts pressure on people to have higher ability scores and get those modifiers and have a more powerful character. And if you can't get that, you feel like you're being shortchanged, and that's a problem. Uh, I think they've kind of addressed it nowadays, but in a way that's not really satisfactory to me. Um, I'm not going to go into that conversation here. I can see a load of turtles on the rock. They are so cute. They're the smaller ones. They're still growing. Some of these ones are like a foot across. Um, the you know, uh, thirty centimeters or so. These ones are still growing. They're just uh, the smallest one are just uh, like five, six, seven centimeters, head to tail. Um, the bigger ones are maybe twenty something. Um, head to tail the bigger biggest ones i've seen yeah the shell alone is like at least 30 centimeters across they're pretty pretty hefty um i'm gonna keep on going around this river and then i'm gonna have to head back to get back to work but hopefully this hasn't been completely incoherent and you get the idea that i i have some problems with ad and and i think the problems inherent to AD&D while not insurmountable they are exacerbated by Dark Sun and I'm going to leave it at that well thank you for listening to this show and accompanying me on my little journey around 
space and uh, the, the, the space between my ears as well, mostly. Um, I won't go any further today. That's more than enough. But I've been watching the Witcher um, series and uh, surprisingly enjoying it. I say surprisingly because usually I don't really enjoy uh, fantasy adaptations or fantasy media of any kind other than you know the occasional book or role-playing at the table so you know that's been a really uh, surprising discovery I suppose and it's sparked some thoughts and ideas about gaming uh, a little bit of excitement over some tired systems like Dungeons and Dragons even um, perhaps that's something I will explore further uh, in future episodes but until next time you take care enjoy your games the people that you play with and uh, most of all um, yeah just keep on uh, keeping keeping it simple i suppose and uh, getting some joy out of it i mean that's what it's for right so goodbye <laughs>